And let's bring it back, though, Adam, to the the collegiate world or even the elite world. Our coaches' health, which is often poor, they haven't slept. They're not managing their brain health. They're not sleeping, hydrating, you know, eating to to fulfill neurotransmitter need and proper uh, synergy there. And yet they're trying to educate. And they're frustrated. They're reading wrong facial reactions. They're not coaching at a point of excellence or even at a point of getting a information of learning and bridging the diversity of a team. Sports science, strength and conditioning, high performance coaching. Welcome to the Decoding Excellence Show. Today's episode is brought to you by Vaud Performance, the makers of the Nordboard. If you haven't checked out their website yet, I highly suggest you head over there, whether it's return to play, injury prevention, or just plain performance testing. Vaud Performance has the tools that you need. Check them out at vaudperformance.com. Today on the show, I'm joined with Dr. John Sullivan, a sports scientist and clinical sports psychologist that has an emphasis on integrated sports science, human performance technologies, and CNS measurement and assessments. In addition, he is the co-author of a book called The Brain Always Wins, which is a practical guide to improving your life through better brain management. This conversation is a wide-ranging one, and it was a really fun one. I really took a lot away from the time that Dr. Sullivan and I spent together We discussed everything from his thoughts on mental toughness uh, and really what that that really means from a resiliency standpoint. Then we go into talking about some performance technologies and ultimately the show centers around the most important topic, i.e. brain health and what we can do to impact the brain's health from a nutritional, a hydration, a sleep standpoint, and some of his thoughts on creating an integrated performance team of transdisciplinary uh, members. This is a wide-ranging and fun conversation, and I know you're going to take a lot away from this interview. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. John Sullivan. Dr. Sullivan, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Adam. Hey, it's uh, it's my pleasure, and it's you know like obviously, uh, I'm just excited to have you on and, and talk shop. And I think this is going to be a, a fascinating interview. How are things on your end, man? Busy, as you know, it's a busy time of year, but busy is good for for our world in sport. That's for sure. Idle hands. Uh, I'd much rather be busy working with developing talent than. Uh, necessarily watching paint dry but it by the sounds of what you've been up to you're busy as well yeah you know like within the collegiate world i mean obviously march madness is still going on and sweet 16 starts uh today when we're recording the show but uh um, basketball just finished up and you know now it's uh the layover for a couple weeks and then we'll start right back into uh training for what is otherwise the 2018 uh march madness tournament in uh in next year so um, it's busy. Yeah, certainly. Doctor, I wanted to invite you on and and learn from you. And again, as I've said on most of these shows, this is sort of a, a medium to scratch my own itch and to get people uh, like yourself that serve the, the athletic population in a wide variety of disciplines, whether it's, you know, sports performance, whether it's nutrition, whether it's uh, biomechanics and then 
potentially in your case from a uh, sports psychology standpoint and the influence of the cognition and the brain on sport performance. And I'd love to explore a little bit and, and have you provide the audience if they're they've been living under a rock and uh, haven't been exposed to any materials, number one, shame on them. <laughs> but two, uh, I'd love for you to uh, give a, a bio about what you're currently up to and your background. Sure. I appreciate that, Adam. And I, I think it's, uh, they, they've gotten to know you and I love the, you know, I've listened to other podcasts and I love the way you do a conversational um, narrative. I think it's, that's, we learn a lot from that. You know, if we think about our education that we all had, we learn in the classrooms, but it's often the interactions outside. And, and the way you kind of set up your podcast is that exciting opportunities that we had as we were going through our academics. But um, I'm a clinical sports psychologist and uh, sports scientist. So let's see how I spend my days. So um, I've worked in the NFL for 16 years with uh, with the league office on certain initiatives, but I've been with the same team for that amount of time. Uh, I've worked um, in the NCA and currently do in sports medicine and sports science at Providence College, University of Rhode Island, and Brown University. Uh, then I also found my time as an outside civilian consultant to the elite military. And then I'm a visiting scholar at the uh, Queen, Queensland University of Technology and the Queensland Academy of Sport, which is an arm of the Australian Institute of Sport. And then in my spare time, I work with concussion. <laughs> so I find myself in a couple uh, different exciting venues that allow me to engage in different types of research and different type of practitioner care. Uh, and uh, it, it certainly uh, is unique kind of pace, but I really enjoy it because each thing adds to the next. Understanding how to get someone well from concussion bleeds into how do I keep them well, you know, because the brain drives everything. And so how do I keep them well as they're training as athletes because athlete stress is trauma. And then how do I optimize that? And there's other or maintain skill level throughout a season or like you were talking about the NCA season, which is there's no off season anymore. There's a low and high season. And so the maintenance of that skill or maintenance of health is critical. So it's kind of how I spend my days. Uh, and then I probably say in my spare time, I write quite a bit. And uh, uh, you caught me right after a writing period. So my head is full of stuff. <laughs> and, you know, and. I, we're going to explore. A, this is a wide ranging conversation and there's so much uh, that I think we know about people sort of on the superficial level of, you know, what their nine to five is or their day jobs. But I'd love to explore a little bit of, of the writing and and sort of your routines throughout your day. But I think we'll start at, at square one, which is I'd love for you to maybe share the genesis or the start. Like how how did you get interested in in the aspects of whether it's clinical or applied sports psychology, what what drew you to that field initially when you were going through your undergrad or through adolescence or your life? Yeah, it's a great question, you know, because I think there is a genesis for for everyone in any field. Um, I was actually just talking about that the other day with some coaches. You know, there's influences, there's there's really opportunities that kind of direct us uh, to have motivation and excitement. And, and for me, I, I was a Division One athlete, and I was always interested in the fact of where's that next 1%. Um, and, and I did think of it that way back then. And the fact was there had to be more to this. Then, so I was a Division One athlete. I, I I grew up playing a lot of different sports, um, you know. And when we see that in athletes today, it's kind of exciting. But probably for me and you, it was pretty much a norm. Um, but 
I ended up uh, specializing, if, if you will, in track and field and cross country and in some other endurance sports, cycling, but in the division one level, track and field and cross country. And I, and I just kept looking at it going, there's got to be more to this. There's got to be more to, you know, long, steady distance intervals, um, you know, VO2 max, uh, cardiac capacity. There has to be more. And so uh, it, it really kind of spurred me on to start really examining this stuff. Uh, so as an undergrad, I was lucky enough to have a mentor. And I think that's a, a theme that all your listeners can can relate to. And if you got younger listeners who are in the academic system now, that is something to find. It's somewhere in your academic journey is to connect and really have a mentor. And he actually was trained in clinical psychology, um, but he was one of the very, very few that was really specialized in both clinical psychology and sport which to be a sports psychologist, you have to be a clinical psychologist. Uh, you got mental trainers and mental coaches, but they are not sports psychologists. Their training is very, very, very different, and it's less rigorous, uh, and, and there's a lot of gaps in knowledge base. But I was lucky to have him as a mentor. And so he was able to kind of give me readings. And so it kind of fit along with my psychological uh, studies, uh, if you will, academically. And then I was also a, a journalism major as well. So um, they kind of fit into each other, that piece of communication and, and understanding how to get a message across. But it was really from a, being a competitive athlete. That's where it really started. Yeah. Do, do you feel in your adolescence as you're going through sort of what is otherwise our prep career of high school and, and maybe prior to that, but you know, with this understanding of what you know now on the other end of it, being a professional that you are, did, did you find yourself looking back and saying, yeah, I felt like I, I had the mental skill sets, the tools, the tactics uh, to navigate what it was otherwise your prep career uh, through cross country and through a wide variety of different sports. Um, were you, you know, I use this sort of nebulous term, but were you, did you have the tool set of what you now possess or was that, that the, the, inability or the lack of tools drove you to a better understanding or to seek the answers of finding that 1%, which is, you know, that this mental, um, skill set or this, this, what we now know as, you know, uh, sports psychology or clinical psych. Yeah, that's a great question because you can see, obviously people's kind of motivation is sometimes driven by, uh, you know, feeling, a, you know, a capacity. There's an incapacity there, and then how do I improve it? And then there's also human motivation that drives just that thirst of intrinsic knowledge. Like, how does this stuff work? What's the why in this? Why does this happen? And and I can't say it's either or. I think it's a bit of both, to be quite honest with you. I think from the standpoint of um, as a competitive athlete, you know, I think this generally happens. Um, and this goes to some of the myths out there that predominate in sport, and there and there are many. Uh, but I, I tend to find with my bias or my focus is there's plenty about the brain that we, we just don't we don't talk much about the brain in sport. We don't learn much as a culture. Um, you know, people can lay blame on that. I just kind of take it. It is what it is. And that's really kind of worldwide. So when you take any athlete, even me as a young athlete, there are gaps in abilities physiologically because there are gaps in tools 
emotionally and emotions run the show and sport and life. They really do. We feel first, then think not what everyone learns in our society is that we think and feel that is not accurate. So when you have an athlete who can't regulate before an event or is somewhat dysregulated, it affects VO2 max. It affects power output. It affects movement efficiency. It affects information input at critical times. If I go back to my sport in running, do I make a move? Do I not make a move tactically? So, yes, of course, there was gaps. Uh, I think there's gaps with anyone. That's just developmental. Um, it's not a, uh, a weakness sort of thing. It's just developmental. And then I think there's another piece to your question that's really, really good is that the very fact that often we train things in sport that we forget transfer to other environments like their skills, their tools, their strengths. And I think we forget sometimes to point that out to athletes that uh, being in a training cycle is difficult. It, it takes a discipline. It takes a scheduling, an awareness. But those types of things also are helpful in the academic journey because uh, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. So you have to have that resilience. You have to have that discipline. You have to have routines. And so, yeah, I think sport did help me develop some of that to be um, disciplined with my studies and then also pursue them in a similar way uh, intrinsically. Wow, this is really cool. This is exciting and seeing progress. Yeah. No, I think both both were certainly a part of my process. Yeah, because, you know, I just when you were sharing some of that, I, I sometimes think with other practitioners, like, is it the chicken or the egg? Right. Mm. Is it mm. do you mm. did you have these strengths innately or was it sort of cultivated sort of by family or mentors or young you know, yep. youth coaches that sort of set the pathway for you, the genesis? Or did you find that? you know, the inability or the lack of having a coach that talked about these mental tools, whether it's routines or visualization or self-talk or just what some of the, the classical, you know, on the superficial level of what we might be aware of. And I know there's much more and there's so much more that I'm completely oblivious and unaware of. But um, I was wondering if, if you didn't have that person, which is then what drove you to maybe potentially scratching your own itch of understanding there has to be more, there has to be more, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, I, you know, then I just think that I'm, I'm glad you shared that because that's so important. And you touch on another thing right there, those mentors even having like when I don't look, I look back at it, I'm not upset that the group of coaches I had were unaware of these things. I think even today, we ask our sport coaches to do too much with too few resources. Meaning, if you look at more mature, formalized structures of sports science around the world, to be a coach, a sport coach, you, you have to have a degree and then you have to have a, a high, you typically a higher ed degree, a master's degree, and then go for certifications. And it doesn't make you an expert on all the points that compass a sports science, it doesn't make you a nutritionist, a physiologist, a strength and conditioning coach, a sports psychologist. But it lets you understand how to utilize those resources and communicate and then how to put it into a program where they're not leading necessarily, but they're collaborating. And I feel, so I don't, don't hold any negative feeling about sport coaching in the United States in that way. We're just not as formalized. Um, but I still had those questions of, 
what else goes on. And I, and I would say I can think of one particular sport coach I had that he was probably that same way. He was inquisitive. There's got to be more to this. I mean, I, I get this other stuff's important. You gotta you gotta train physiology, but there's you know central physiology and 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 neurophysiology that's important as well. But yeah, it is. It's sometimes having the questions yourself or people posing them or the gaps in them. But without mentors, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be where I'm at. It's just it. You, we're never an island to ourselves. Um, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, and you know, I, I I owe so much my own success and inquisitiveness, and and uh, I think the way that I think, and even you know, when you look re- retrospectively and you uh, you go back, I mean, the the strengths of your mentors allow you to catapult you into a, a particular field or share an interest, but also just maybe as importantly, the weaknesses that they share. If you look back on them, I mean, like anything mm. can be a lesson. Um, mm. If you, if you look at it and say, okay, what could I do differently from what did I learn out of this particular person's, this mentor's inability to communicate or day, you know, whatever, maybe what is perceived as a, as a weakness could allow with a little retrospection and, and, and introspection in it uh, to really uh, analyze, you know, like what, how could I have done things differently? But yeah, I think, I think Adam, that's a really strong point and it's one that's missed often in, in sport or in the process of having supervisees or interns that we mentor because in sport, we often are emphasizing a, a, an untruth about the neuroscience of learning. That as mentors or, 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 you know, supervisors that we should be not showing mistakes. And this is kind of a myth in sport. You, you, you work to perfection. Well, in fact, the brain hates perfection. It responds with anxiety and disruption to processes that have even been practiced well to mastery. And so to your point, we should be showing our supervisees and even asking them, okay, did you notice I made a mistake in there? Where was it? But yet we have the shame about it. We have this attitude that we shouldn't be. But actually the brain needs to make mistakes to solidify pathways that are more formal, that are more appropriate or a higher level learning. And so I agree with you that mentors who are open about I'm not perfect, I make mistakes or even have their students go, OK, what would you have done differently there? What did you see? I did make a mistake and are open with that and can let their ego down. It's a much stronger learning environment. You said two words in that that really resonate with me. And you, you spoke of mastery and you spoke of ego, which I think sort of, you know, when, when ego is present, it's really hard to uh, to find or at least seek or be on the journey of mastery. And I love that because. You know, and similarly, and with here, with the people that that work with me and around me, I mean, one of the biggest things I want to do is is share what my weaknesses are, and I think that's that is kind of a uh, a, a transparency from mm-hmm. a coach to say like, this is what I'm working on, this is what I'm not great at, and this is a a weakness of mine, perhaps. But just know, like you who are interning, volunteering, or mentoring, or whatever. Uh, you are working on your own path towards mastery, but that nobody's ever going to arrive as a master, you know, like, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, for me, it's the transparency of showing that I have weaknesses and these are the things I'm working on and catch me when I'm doing something poorly and, and identify that. And we can be accountable to each other. And I think that takes, 
uh, an egoless approach. And I think ego often, as, as Ryan Holiday would say, ego sort of gets in the way. Um, ego is the enemy in that, uh, in that aspect. And that's a, and that's a great point right there. And I often think how it's talked about and let's get into the psychology of it. It's often talked about this amorphous thing. And then that's why these points about ego are kind of left to the side. What do they mean? How do I, how do I conceptualize it, contextualize it, and, and make it actionable? An easy way to do that is we all have an ego. It's how we use it in situationally. And it goes back to the heart of kind of our brain structure. We feel first, then think. This ego is managed by managing emotion. If you cannot manage emotion in situations, then we are unable to execute at our highest level. So typically when we talk about learning, when ego gets involved, it really has to do with emotion that's disrupting the process. So if I'm the supervisor and I'm getting defensive about a situation, I've now lost either the ability to interact or the ability to listen to the signal that I'm getting defensive and why is that? And then interact appropriately. Because ego is not this amorphous thing. It relates to emotion regulation. And that's the piece people often miss. Um, they just think of um, extreme examples. Uh, they, they think of people that are just very authoritarian or very rough or very macho. No, there's subtleties to this. When you can't manage emotion or be aware of it yourself and how to use it, you've now suddenly become ineffective educator. And I think this is a good transition. Obviously, you know, we, you, you spoke about writing and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, uh, your book, the brain always wins and, and your Twitter handle brain always wins. If, you know, if the, the audience were to, uh, haven't followed you as a resource yet, I, again, I highly suggest, uh, doing so, but the brain always wins.com in this book, you talk a, a, a lot about, Hopefully, you know, obviously some of the, the topics that we talk about, but the transition I'm going to make here from sort of a nebulous term as uh, as ego, uh, grit, toughness, mental toughness, character, all these sort of ambiguous sort of terms that I think we throw around sometimes or coaches, uh, especially in my industry from a strength and conditioning perspective, um, sometimes throws out and uh, and may you know, wrongly or, you know, however your opinion is, right, uh, create workouts that develop mental toughness. And then we go down this pathway of, well, these workouts don't develop mental toughness, they reveal mental toughness, but we're still defining mental toughness as this sort of uh, ambiguous set of maybe tools, I, I doubt that, but resiliency or character or personality or grit. I'd love for you to maybe expand on some of uh, your opinions or maybe the myths of sort of these classifications of of what we call what we think of as these sort of sports psychology tool sets uh, as these words. I'd love for you to explore that a little bit. Yeah, you've set that up quite well. I really love how you went back and forth with it because it really kind of is the heart of where we're at, where mental toughness means everything and nothing. And in science, that's not a fit. It's, it has to bring uh, knowledge. It has to bring clarity. And when you get to a subjective definition of mental toughness or grit, um, and they mean everything and nothing, it's the perfect example 
that where we should take a pause in sports science and go, is that accurate or is that just pseudoscience? Now, remember, I'm criticizing my own field and I'm happy to do it because this term has been used to mean everything and nothing. And that means, to your point, it's been used to hurt people. It's been used to not develop talent. It's been used to not protect talent. And so we should all take a pause with these things. And very much what you said is, is it, you know, are these programs really developing mental toughness? Um, I have to say, if you just look at the history of mental toughness and I can get into the history of grit, the term's been around since the late 1980s. It really was a rebranded term from hardiness. Um, and in that look in personality research. And it wasn't until 2005 that it even became relatively strong with some scientific uh, rigor. And so if you think about that gap, but how long it had been being used, and yet it still wasn't establishing any rigor. Most of the experiments were, uh, you know, in the studies which were using self-report measures and subjective measures really were getting to the heart of the matter. And they still don't. They hold very little validity. Um, not that mental skills like the traditional, what I like to call sports psychology 1.0, like you mentioned before, visualization, routine building, goal setting, these types of things, they don't show merit. They do. And in fact, we know even more they have merit by looking at the neuroscience of them now. But that mental toughness is a, a reasonable concept is not true. Um, and then you brought up a really valuable point that I've witnessed coaches do. They'll use the term mental toughness. And I just saw this probably about a week ago. A coach was saying to the athletes, I really need you to be mentally tough right now. And what he meant was focus. I got no problem with that. You're, you're cueing them to get into your, your individual routine to kind of get focused. But again, the term meaning everything. And it being unspecific is a bit of a problem. And you want to be telling your athletes not to be their best, but how. So when you use that term, that can be very confusing and it's not specific. And I'm very into specifics because I'm a scientist. But then when you get into grit, so let's get into grit. Grit is a rebranded term as well. And when I say that, that's a negative Scientifically, when we've evaluated a term already through subjective and objective measures, that means we've probably taken it to its nth degree. There's nothing more to be found out. And grit was rebranded from conscientiousness. And, um, you know, Duckworth, Dr. Duckworth, did her research on grit. Yet I've posted on Twitter and elsewhere, you can look at Dr. Credo's work from Indiana University, a meta-analysis of over 300 studies looking at, she made some simple statistical errors, so it accounted for less than 1% of any variance, so it accounted for 1% of any change. Um, that the term is does not mean anything, and she's been able to prove nothing in the environment which she studied, which is academics, yet she has been proliferating it that it's a concept in sport when you can't do that. She's done no research in sport, and it's not even a concept. So when we look at these, they're very based on belief bias and illusions of validity. They sound good. I mean, to, to the common person, they really do sound good, and, they, and to even in sports scientists, they sound good, but they have no evidence. The evidence where evidence lies is that we are born with the most sophisticated survival system in the known universe, the human brain. So we start from day one resilient. And it's how you train it. Either you de uh, develop adaption or evolution. 
So it really goes down to the multidisciplinary or the transdisciplinary where you train an individual because we start with someone that's already tough. And, and, and so the, the, these, these concepts uh, have gotten entrenched in our culture and in our language, and we just have to shift them. We have to go to a much better understanding of a term that fits more neurophysiology is resilience. Really looking at, you know, resilience is a, a, a looking at a readiness factor of what you mentioned earlier, rest, uh, loading relative adaption from the CNS out to the periphery. So we get to a much more scientific, measurable, and individual neurodiversity terminology because we don't train teams, we train individuals, and they all don't develop at the same rate. Yeah, or recover at the same rate for that matter nope. either. Yes. I, I'd love to, to go down this route. So you, you, we talked, and, and certainly there's some maybe sports psychology uh, version 1.0, and if we're shifting and we're looking ahead to what the horizon's looking, and if we were to visualize perhaps what sports psychology 2.0 uh, would be or the next generation of it, and we were to go down the ro- route of resiliency uh, in athletes, and I know that's, that's also sort of, I think, kind of parallels the route within strength conditioning and performance training with building robustness and injury re- you know, reduction and, and prevention in, stu- in athletes or student athletes or whatever. Um, but if we were to explore this resiliency, if you could, what, how would you define that? And then perhaps to go one step further, uh, how do you develop that or how do you begin to lay the foundation to develop and discuss what these strategies are with athletes or with coaching staffs? Sure. I mean, resilience from the literature and it comes from two places. It goes back to kind of a bit of our conversation earlier. It's like asking the question why. And in the psychological literature, when we were looking at people who were put in really traumatic situations, whether it be abuse, whether it be war-torn environments, whereas soldiers returning from combat missions, we were seeing that obviously for some it's an overload on the emotional system. And again, we feel first, then think an overload on the emotional system. And so people would develop acute stress or PTSD. Now, granted, we have methods and we're still getting better with that technology. But we also discovered this group who don't get traumatized. And so that became really interesting in the literature is why? Like, let's get to the heart of this. What was it about the neurophysiology and their internal psychology or their internal resources or skills or tactics or routines that, that really kind of allowed that trauma not to stick neurologically. And so that was one area where it started to get established. Another area was looking at healthcare status in the sense of people going through, um, you know, long-term health issues or uh, acute issues like cancer. And why were some more resilient through the process of having to go through chemo or go through radiation, or just go through the treatment process? Why were these groups of individuals standing out of being able to recover faster? So it really came from a a clinical standpoint, but it very much fits sport. And really what we're looking at is, since the brain is the central organ for adaption to all experiences, what is changing in the brain architecture to alter systematic functioning, like autonomic, immune, metabolic, neuroendocrine, so it's really much more specific at looking at signaling. It's all about signaling. 
and looking at the systems of the CNS responding to peripheral stresses, whether I go for a run, whether I got to study for a test, you know, I got to I got to do that public speaking. These are all stressors, um, or I would say it's much more micro trauma. And then what are the windows of plasticity for growth and redirection function for better health? So that is really what resilience is doing. We're looking at uh, a really a systematic approach that's including objective data along with subjective data. Now, maybe to go a little bit further. So right now with the current literature and the state of technology, what what are some of those objective measures that we can begin to explore both from, you know, a very sort of clinical standpoint, um, maybe very sort of laboratory standpoint? To maybe, you know, the field tests that, you know, that a, uh, a youth coach could equip, um, you know, the scalability of, of sort of these objective measures um, when working with either an athlete or a student or someone else. Yeah, I love the way you rolled that out. It really is kind of we got to think about how we use technology and how we assess and what resources do we have available. And they really do break down like that, right? In field testing with limited resources, what could we get at that's relatively valid and reliable and could help us give us some information about because health is a foundation of performance. So how do I keep my athlete healthy? And then if my resources are low, how can I gather some information that's relatively reliable? Then you obviously look at if you have a larger sports science team, what can we do? Interacting transdisciplinary to get information to the coach and the athletes to make the environment more culturally sound to produce performance. And then laboratory, which – Again, could be a byproduct of getting sampling and then sending it out and bringing it back to the system or more laboratory research. I think when we look at uh, from a low resource environment, uh, unfortunately, we're working with tools that are going to have some error. They just are. The problem is, is because in sport, if you ask an athlete if they're ready, we all grew up in this. You look at the coach and you say you are, even though in your head you might be going, hell no. Yeah. (laughs) So there's that social desirability factor. However, it, it, like any assessment, it should be embedded in an education program to try to reduce that over time. Or you use some measures to assess that desirability. Not necessarily if they're lying. It, typically, it's not about lying. It's about almost an unconscious or conscious faking good. I need because I because it may have to do with who's starting today. So it's using platforms like that can reach them where they're at, like on their on their smartphones, and it can be done immediately, like MetroFit, Coach Me Plus, Kinduct, SMG. You can pull your athletes and do it at proper times of day where you're going to get high compliance. That can be helpful, but it's got to be embedded in an education program. Otherwise, you, they don't get any of their whys answered. There are going to be questions. And you don't get to shape them about this is so we can take care of you as opposed to this is so we can police you. Yeah. So just measuring emotions. Emotions has the highest correlation to brain health because evolutionary wise, it is uh, what has allowed us to adapt because it's an intricate part of our warning system. We're taught in sport and partly culturally in life not to listen. But in fact, it's derived from the CNS. It's gut-brain interaction. And when you don't listen, you miss opportunities to uh, have choices or have knowledge. 
So just just looking at emotion is one of the key factors from a low resource. Just asking them, and there and there's certainly uh, when I've looked at those platforms who do it electronically, it's it's pretty uh, standardized to some of the stuff we will see in written kind of pencil and paper measures. So that those kind of things have been pretty standardized. I think what uh, what's important, and I know there's a, a whole uh, avenue and route that you could go down from a laboratory and from a high resource standpoint. But you know, the times that we've done uh, subjective wellness questionnaires, you know, and and you you alluded to it, you said it, and I think you said it brilliantly. You know, when we're we're looking at emotion and we're monitoring or at least assessing or asking the question, you know, like how is you know, how is your mood? What is your fatigue like? What is your sleep like? What is your soreness like? Um, if you do two things, right? If you fail to embed that information in an educational se- education setting and start to talk about maybe some of the low-hanging fruit that affects your mood, your fatigue, your central nervous system, your sleep, um, you're ultimately failing with equipping the student athlete with the tools and the tactics to take ownership of how to better uh, affect their long-term health and i.e. their readiness. But secondly, if you use that information or, or rather if you don't use it, then it almost becomes neglect on the other end. It's just, you know, the, the emotion drives. I've reported that my mood is low. My fatigue is at an all-time high. I didn't sleep. And you're not listening to me, coach. And that mm-hmm. can negatively affect uh, the perception of a student athlete at, that you, you know, here you are. You have this intervention that you, you, you've developed out of care, but the inability to follow through on the information communicates otherwise that you don't care, <laughs> uh, which I found also um, intriguing. You know, to you better if you are going to go down this road, then you better have the scalability and the flexibility to actually be receptive to the information that you're receiving. Very, very true. That's that systematic programming that has to be put into place, and I think. You know that we in the United States can be leaders in content areas, but formally the sports science structure is very, very limited in the sense that because coaches don't have a formal educational pathway in the United States, they're not given the resources to understand this information. So to your strength of point there, and then if you don't have a sports science team that's systematically or the resources, just human resources, meaning time, uh, availability, and then disciplines represented, it's so easy to neglect this information and then you can't build a high performance environment or it gets much more difficult because there's more noise if you don't have trust you don't have much to work with that is just to the heart of psychology in the sense of attending skills we learn that as psychologists that if you cannot create rapport connection good luck with anything else so when a coach sits up there and talks about it as a family or as a team and he's negating these factors of communication then emotionally they're not going to feel that connection. And so it's to your heart of your point. We talk about it in the, uh, in the book, The Brain Always Wins. Uh, my co-author, Chris Parker, who's at University of Nottingham Trent in sports science, we talk about these factors. You talk about if human performance in the United States often is put into this two-bucket system that health and performance don't touch. When you cannot perform unless you're healthy, and that's brain-derived, and if you don't sleep, you don't hydrate, you don't feed the gut brain access through nutrition. And then that all affects emotion. 
you have a very weak foundation to work from. And we talked earlier and you mentioned the NCA system. The NCA system is a perfect example of unsustainable performance because they're asked to do 70 hours a week of work. Six bosses, some of them called professors, some of them called coaches. And they have fewer internal resources and fewer human resources to help protect them. It's an unsustainable thing. So what do we see? Some of the highest rates of what most people call mental health, I'll call brain health. I think mental health is not an accurate term, nor has it served us very well. It's filled with quite a bit of bias. But a reduction in brain health. And so then a reduction in physical health and then a reduction in performance in the classroom and on the fields of play. Yet I know the NCA shows all, you know, gives us examples of the outliers, but we got to think of bell curve. The majority of people are managing an unsustainable environment that attacks brain health. And I'm so glad that you you mentioned you know, the importance of fueling, the importance of hydration, the importance of sleep and, and what you actually consume from a nutrition standpoint. Uh, because I do think that is some low hanging fruit that we should be addressing and educating and talking about, um, the, not only the importance, but setting up an educational structure to make sure that our actions as coaches actually uh, elicit that training response that we want. And I, I'm curious, you know, both in your book and your experience, are there other low hanging fruit that we as cl- sort of clinicians, as practitioners should be exploring and, uh, and sharing with our student athletes? And if are, if there are, I mean, what are, what are some of the, the baby steps, the progressions that coaches that aren't implementing these systems can begin making today? I love the way you frame that. I mean, low-hanging fruit and easy wins works with the innate uh, motivational structures within our brain. And we should be going at things that provide great leverage for health and their everyday factors. And I teach this to my NFL athletes all the time. They're obviously uh, concerned about CTE, as I have been. Um, I don't know why I get invited to league office meetings and talk about concussion because I tell the truth. Um, maybe it's so they can just hear it and they say they heard it. Um, but you know, I teach them your biggest lever is your lifestyle. And so to your point, that's low hanging fruit. So you can stimulate an athlete with a proper workout, but we all know, and I've heard plenty of coaches complain about it. It's the hours away from the facility that undo any of the signaling. It's absolutely accurate because we've overdosed or overemphasized the workout is the only part of the process that matters. No, no, that's the stimulus where it all comes together is low-hanging fruit and lifestyle. So let's go back to nutrition. I think you're touching on one. And I posted something on Twitter absolutely to the heart of this today. If you look at – and there's research to show this – most – Um, nutrition textbooks for a graduate level and undergraduate level and medical, whether it be biological or absolutely medical textbooks for medical school will have to be rewritten. What we are learning about the, the gut biome is changing the face of what we understand that everything we do is about signaling. And some neurotransmitters cannot be produced except for certain foods in our diet. They act as precursors like serotonin. Tryptophan is its precursor. We can't make it internally. So we have to take in certain types of foods that allow that to be, uh, you know, transformed, if you will. And if you look at serotonin's impact on training, we, it downregulates. Training makes it go up. But when you can't recover, it goes down. So what does serotonin affect? Mood, 
focus, memory. None of those things are validly important. (laughs) But yet we don't teach our athletes that. And the nutrition information they're getting is all about fueling muscle. So there's other tissues that are far more important. Uh, Brain tissue, cardiac tissue. You know, again, the center of our body, brain, heart, stomach, connected by one nerve, the vagus nerve. So if we're not feeding for signaling, not just for muscle, that's low-hanging fruit. And most of the education our athletes are getting has nothing to do with CNS signaling. Nothing. Um, It may be a byproduct helping, but again, those whys matter. If you bring it to the brain, it's not just more information. It's more specific information about why it's important. Connecting the systems. Um, so I think that's low-hanging fruit. Absolutely. And we, if you look at the statistics of depression among NCA athletes, I just use that model. You can The statistics are the same across the board for elite sport. But it's very, very high. Why? Training is not stress. It's trauma. Trauma has an impact on the brain and the stomach and the heart. If it does, and we're not fueling for signaling and neurotransmitters, which we talk about in the book, The Brain Always Wins, then you're not centering on providing fueling because fueling is for the brain primarily. Everything's brain first. Yeah. But but we emphasize other things. I I love the fact, uh, both in your book and the resources that you've shared and and other mediums as well, that as you go through and you're you're talking about the importance of nutrition, not just to fuel muscles, but to fuel the brain. And then from a nutritional aspect as well, or from a hydrational aspect as well. And then this sort of also something that I think is um, certainly within sort of our world of performance, I, I think it's gravitated, um, certainly has moved into the NCAA and you're seeing professional organizations with sleep rooms and nap rooms and um, Premier League and, and, uh, and elsewhere starting to emphasize the importance of sleep as if it wasn't ever important at one point in time, <laughs> but um, starting to look at this as a uh, sort of WADA approved um, performance enhancing uh, discipline, if you will, uh, PED, if you will. And yeah. uh, I love to hear you riff a little bit about the importance of sleep and, and from an immunocompromised sort of position of, of the negative aspects of poor sleep from a decision making, from a cognitive sort of standpoint. And, you know, like w- what what some of the effects are of, of negative sleep or poor sleep and how that can ultimately affect performance. Yeah, I, I, I love the way you frame that in the sense that it's, you know, it's suddenly become important. Um, I, you know, I, I totally agree with that. Um, looking at the research and how it's been out there, there has certainly been a push more for looking at it. But there's been decades of good research out there. Um, and one of the leaders on that is the military. Uh, and then also other shift work type environments where critical decision making is pretty important. You go to an ER, you want that doctor to be relatively fresh to be able to make those decisions. So in medicine, we've seen that um, across even disciplines in medicine, looking at surgery and looking at, you know, outcomes of surgery when they're fatigued at a certain level or decision making in an ER. But we also see it with pilots, uh, truck drivers, been involved with with some of that research as well. So you're right, it's coming out of the out of the woods like oh my god we just discovered this Uh, no (laughs) um i what we have discovered the last five years which is monumental is that we did not know the brain had a lymphatic system 
that at sleep, it, it deepest levels of sleep, um, we our brain is actually detoxifying, and it detoxifies first before any other system. So the importance of sleep is actually the reparative factor of neuroplasticity, that all systems are growing, but they're also important that it gets rid of things that either are a danger to the body in higher amounts, like tau proteins, or we're getting rid of neurotransmitters that we do not need. Uh, so there is that process that's ongoing, and that's been a discovery in the last five years, and that came from research at the University of Rochester, uh, and that's hugely add to it. But sleep is your number one performance enhancer. There are still things, to be quite blunt, we don't know about it, uh, and, and people shouldn't be alarmed by that, but I think people are. I just like People are kind of surprised that there's a difference between the brain and the mind, and we actually don't know what the mind is. And get into that another time, but there is a big difference. And we know more about the brain. But regardless, sleep is your number one performance enhancer. And to the heart of your question is what do we lose and then what do we gain? So we lose quite a bit. So the average NCAA athlete, just using that as an example, um, because it is your largest elite athlete organization in the world. So if we're looking at athletes got to be taken care of, there's quite a few. Their average is five hours a night. So that is not uh, enough for if you think about their primary roles. So you're not getting enough time for uh, neurogenesis of brain tissue and then any other tissue after that. And then when we look at their other primary role of memory, learning, taking in information and then being able to interact with it in some way and show a discipline of I know that it's not enough time to consolidate information. And if we take both of those and then start going down the chain of things that are negatively impacted. So let's go on the sports side. Obviously, sports should be developing some cardiorespiratory ability, the O2 max, you know, energy output, energy efficiency. It's by lack of sleep, we're scarring the internal organs of the cardiorespiratory system. So we're reducing their capacity even though we're trying to stimulate growth there and increase its strength and vitality. If we go on the side of attention, which bridges both parts, um, and attention is not event, it's a tripart process. So if we go attention in the classroom, it's ability to be alert that information, track it, and then make an executive decision about, do I take a note about that? How do I take that note? How do I take in that information? Or how do I encapsulate it so I can remember it later? In sport, it's the same thing. Am I alerted to the sequence? Do I get the pattern? Then am I, can I have the capacity to track it? And then can I make a decision? Both, the lack of sleep affects both decision-making arenas. If you don't have attention, it doesn't, you don't unlock anything else. It's just how the brain works. I think to your point, too, I mean, it's just experience working with a wide variety of different athletes. It's, you know, anybody that's been in both an educational role or a coaching role. And I think that are acutely aware of it. I mean, there's a there's a skill to learning and sort of this meta learning of how to improve the actual intake of information both a sensory or from an educational standpoint, and applying that in a way that changes both behaviors or movement patterns. And I think, to your point, some of the, the things that you've just discussed certainly supports their ability to better retain, use, decode, and assess mm -hmm. that information and, and make it actionable for them. 
Yeah, I mean, did you the example you're giving there? I can give you some examples from science. So they did research in the NHL, and they're looking at differences within the healthy range of sleep. So the healthy range of sleep is seven to ten, and so we both know ice hockey is a very fast sport. I mean, that your puck range of speed is you know anywhere from sixty to to over a hundred miles an hour, and then your range of speed on ice for players can range anywhere from twenty five miles an hour up to forty or fifty. So it's a fast-paced sport, and they started to look at, is there a difference between someone who sleeps seven hours, still in the healthy range, and 10 hours, and their ability to uh, you know, have good read and react abilities and leading to good abilities to decide? There is, and you're still in the healthy range. Now, granted, there's human diversity there where you know sleep is not a one-size-fits-all, but within that study, they were able to show and control for some of those individual differences that it's individual and we should be tailoring it to such, and sleep is an enhancer on that pattern recognition attention sequencing. But then it leads into that other sequence that really connects to it, which we talked about earlier, emotions. We've all been around colleagues, friends, family who we know didn't sleep well. They are irritable. And that's an evolutionary signal to us that we're not 100%. It makes us a little anxious. we got to stay on our toes, and that's adaptive. But if your emotions are off and you're put into a high-performance environment, it affects decision-making. It affects how you move. It affects how you execute. It affects your fatigue level uh, and your recovery level post. So, again, there isn't anywhere sleep doesn't touch because evolutionary-wise, we've needed it because as our brain has grown, uh, we've needed that ability for neuroplasticity. And so if we pull away from that, there's a whole host of undercurrents that can happen. We, we do see movement issues, and then we do see, um, you know, unfortunately, issues related to, you know, connective tissue, ACLs, hip impingements, things like that due to lack of sleep. We don't move the same. You know, to pair to parallel some of the touch points that you just discussed. I mean, I I share a similar story uh, from you know to to mirror like Dr. Kelly Starrad or Dr. Kirk Pars or Kirk Parsley, and the the, the sort of example is a, a surgeon that might be going in to repair your your ACL and them you know putting on their rubber gloves and then you know taking a, a shot of tequila and then you know to follow that up with another shot of tequila and then to grab the scalpel and uh you know like nobody would ever sort of mm. allow for mm. that to happen at the at their workplace but yet we still ask pilots to go in and, and fly the 747 jets or uh mm. you know the 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 doctor the surgeon waking up you know with only five to six hours of sleep and then, you know, ask them to perform their professional duties. Yet it's okay for our athletes to only get five, six hours of sleep. And sometimes if you're traveling, you know, East Coast to West Coast for a, a competition, you know, like, you know, it, how it, how it affects um, sleep yeah. in, in that aspect and that recovery and the reaction time and the cognitive abilities that a person may have. And I, I look at that and I kind of, I think it's ludicrous. <laughs> well, you're right. And you bring it to a really great example. I've written two journal articles about it. If we take occupational health standards and then we mirror it against what we ask our college athletes to do, it wouldn't be acceptable. It's not at all acceptable. And in fact, when we look at high stress jobs that relate to working against chronobiology and our sleep patterns, these occupations have rules in place 
Um, now, again, sometimes they're not followed and we can we, we hear about those cases and we hear about those cases because, to your point, this isn't followed. This is dangerous. Do you you want a surgeon standing over you go, I haven't slept in 32 hours. I think before you get any, you know, more unconscious, you're like, I'm out. Get me yeah. someone. Do we got a do we got a replacement team here, surgical team? And then the same if, you know, uh, a pilot got on. You know, the intercom and goes, you know, uh, I haven't slept in three days, see on the ground. And then the <laughs> steward or stewardess says, you know, we're flying to so-and-so. If you'd like to get off the flight now, I think you'd see a mass exodus. Yet these occupational health standards, if you compare it to college athletes, we're asking them to do something we don't ask grown adults to do who have more internal resources or more actually fundamental resources in their occupation. And, and then it spins into this other piece that – and my work with law enforcement in the military, we know that a lack of sleep affects visual pathways, but it affects our interpretation across those pathways to the brain. So if someone is underrested by sleep, they will interpret pre-fight indicators that are not there. They will interpret aggressive nonverbal behavior because we communicate much faster and much more content nonverbally. So when you think about law enforcement and military engagement, and you have disrupted visual patterns where they're seeing aggression where it isn't there. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. Especially nowadays when we demand even more of our soldiers and military service members to go on longer tours or longer recon missions ranging in 48 to 72 hours at a time. And what that sleep deprivation can ultimately affect as they're on a mission from a cognitive standpoint, uh, visual standpoint or things like that. And let's bring it back, though, Adam, to the, the collegiate world or even the elite world. Our coaches' health, which is often poor, they haven't slept. They're not managing their brain health. They're not sleeping, hydrating, you know, eating to, to fulfill neurotransmitter need and proper uh, synergy there. And yet they're trying to educate. And they're frustrated. They're reading wrong facial reactions. They're not coaching at a point of excellence or even at a point of getting a information of learning and bridging the diversity of a team. Or you, you're, you've put your athletes through that and they're misinterpreting a coach. There's an interrelation in here that's happening where you now just don't – you're not working in a high-performance environment because the learning environment is not rich. It's actually quite poor. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought it around to coaches health, because I think certainly in the United States that this is sort of uh, the thing that's missed. I mean, we, we share about the importance of of hydration and sleep and nutrition and lifestyle balance, this work life balance. Yet as practitioners, as coaches, you know, we're often the last people to take our own medicine because we have an early morning coaching group at 6am and we're staying up and it's the keeping up the Joneses to read research and articles and this, that, you know, ultimately we're hurting both our, our end goal, which is educating athletes through the vehicle of ourselves mm. by predispositioning ourselves in a negative state where, you know, ultimately we drive our own performance down the performance of effective coaching, effective education. And I, I see that so prevalent in our industry. And um, to parallel that with, uh, and I might've said this on a, a previous show, but I, I just thought it's so important um, you know, an expose article uh, from, you know, Coach Urban Meyer at Ohio State, the, the lone wolf, I think it was in Sports <laughs> Illustrated or ESPN, talking about 
how we as coaches don't talk about mental health issues and that, you know, there's more people in the coaching industry that struggle and that battle have these invisible battles of, of mental health. But because of the egotism, because of the machoism of elite sport, we neglect our own mental health sometimes. Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, you know, brain health to me, um, again, wherever it is on, on the continuum, it all has to do with quality of life and our quality to engage in whatever is important to us in front of us. And what fascinates me about the, the, your point that you're making, and I think it's very true, this resistance in sport, is the military has engaged more in the concept of brain health. And in fact, they're probably the leaders, if we look at it from a systematic level. Now, granted, we do hear about failures in the system. It's a big system. Expect you're going to see that. There is no utopia. Yeah. I hate to burst anyone's bubble <laughs> out there. Um, but the elite military was a leader and it's distilled down. They're the leader in 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 performance. Now, granted, not everything you do applies to sport. we got to keep that very clear. Um, but they are leaders in concussion care. And much of what they do is not what we do in sport. And that's only a piece of brain health. But when they talk about what people traditionally call mental health, they're much more tuned to this because what what sport is is what the military is. They're both maybe similar and dissimilar depending upon the situation. It's trauma. And the grind of being a coach is if you make it unsustainable, it's very predictable neurologically the downgrade of brain health. It's very predictable. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the statistics very much, and the way we're wired is very predictable. What will come, um, you know, there may be some neurodiversity and intensity and the direction, but there's, there's very few choices. You're going to, you know, downgrade in gray matter, uh, mass. Um, you are then going to start to feel depressed and anxious. You are going to then go into some of those symptoms. We talked about that lack of sleep. Um, and I, I've been working, you know, it took me, ooh, 10 years of working on that with my NFL team because every coach has a, has the opportunity to interject the opportunity for excellence. But if you look at particularly football, you know, that the start and stop nature, a coach really is from a military standpoint, and, and that sport came from the military really was a way to teach tactics and teamwork that they have the chance to change the events. But if they are not healthy, aware and capable and ready not going to make the call. In fact, you know, as a consultant, I worked with one of the top teams in the NCA and I got asked to come in because they were at the championship game and the call went to the offensive coordinator and he couldn't make the call. It's not that he couldn't make the call from a content knowledge standpoint. He absolutely could. He hadn't slept in three days. (laughs) So the call had to go to the top. And it was in that moment, to your point, that that coach was like, huh, we – we need to do a better job for our athletes, but we're not taking care of ourselves. So how can we be performers? And so it, it's a missed, it's a missed, missed opportunity, a missed point uh, that we all should be taking care of ourselves. We are the vehicle, as you said, for for dissemination of information and caring and and excellence. I want to kind of follow up, maybe as we we come to the end of this thing, with something that you said that really resonated with me. And uh, obviously a coach that works within the NCAA. Um, and you talk about this model of, of the NCAA being unsustainable. And I would love to imagine, but maybe not even imagine, but challenge you know, us as practitioners, as, as coaches within this organization. If you were to see fit and you were responsible for the change 
that is the NCAA and the structure that we know it, the balance of social and academic and what we call sort of amateur sport at this level, laughable, but as we call it that, (laughs) how would you change the model to allow it to be more sustainable and maybe um, at the same point, draw out a better emphasis of brain health and how it impacts performance. But ultimately, what would that structure look like differently in your mind's eye if you were to be responsible for this? Yeah, I think there's many ways to kind of break this down, and I'm probably not going to hit them all in this moment. So I'm going to fail you in some ways, and I'm going to fail myself. So because I think it's a great question, and I think you could do a we could do a whole conversation on that and hit them all. Yeah, I, I really do. I think this is and, and, and to think about a conversation among a number of disciplines within sport having this conversation. What a powerful uh, import that any of us could get from that. But but I'll go with the first side is looking at um, the college athlete. And you might notice I don't say student athlete because it's a misnomer. Um, they're never allowed to fully engage in either capacity because it's unsustainable. And it's also language that was derived from the NCA, so they would not have to pay them when they got injured called workers' comp. So I refuse their propaganda, but but I understand <laughs> why you use it. It's what everyone knows. Absolutely. Right. Um, absolutely what everyone knows. But the first place I would go is, is time demands. So if we look at even if we're dosing properly, and there's an if there because there's a lot of moving parts to a multifactorial process of really training an athlete. But let's say it was dosed properly. There is not enough time to recover from that stimulation because everything loads the brain. That's why when I see all this literature out there of acute chronic ratio and RPE, you are missing the central nervous system. Neither of those in concert can account for the full functional system. Not at all. You're not accounting for all that other load that student has or that athlete has from the academic side. You can't. Only the central nervous system can. Um, and, 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 and the acute chronic ratio to just go down that road in RPE, I have plenty of data that shows both of those looking great. But they still got injured. They still got burned out. Because unless you're looking at the CNS, you don't know. And so the load, the time demands have to be more uh, respectful of what you're asking them to do. And you can go many different ways on that. You can look at the athletic side. You can look at the academic side. You can make adjustments there um, in, in both environments. But the time demands have to allow for adaption and the evolution of those abilities, whatever you're training. And that clearly isn't there. It just isn't. And that's why you do, I think, to some account, there's many reasons why you do see this, but I think that's why you do see, to some account, violations in rules within the NCA where they will fudge factor some of the time demands, you know, paper classes yeah, or recovery. So there has to be looked at that. And I think there's some other issues within the student athlete standpoint. I just used it and help you out there. Um, but it, 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 it definitely, I think there are other issues. But time is the big one because it's not about time. It's about energy. And if you don't have the recovery of the energy for the CNS, you just don't have anything to work with or you just don't have quality to work with. So I think that's one standpoint. I think that in a standpoint of when we look at the athletic departments in and of themselves, um, they are not set up for really that health is the most important factor. 
And until they are, you're not going to be truly protecting talent and developing it. Um, there's plenty of statistics that show the NCA, if we want to develop talent in, say, I'll go back to my sport in the sense of one of the sports I grew up with, long distance running. It is it is a detriment to the development because they race too much. And so if we look at really developing talent and long term athlete development, we have to look at health. And so then let's go with personnel. All right. How many how many universities have a full-time nutritionist? And then does that full-time nutritionist census fit the number of athletes? Or do you have them trying to do everything and there's no way they can because they don't have enough staff? I mean, most. Yeah. Let's, let's just look in your world. How many strength and conditioning coaches are actually engaging with the student-athlete population, but they don't have enough resources to really focus on the programming or to really feel good and and comfortable with it because it's human resources. All these beautiful buildings don't run an athletic department. It's human intelligence. So yeah. it's, it's, it's numbers. Then let's go to biomechanics, which you mentioned earlier. How many people actually will use biomechanical analysis and have access to that resource? Very few. But we know it's important. Then we'll go to sports psychology. I was for when I started this almost 20 years ago, I was one of eight in the United States. Now we're at 80 with 1,100 schools <laughs> and over 450,000 athletes, and it's 2017. Yeah. It, 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 you, if you don't have a transdisciplinary team, we're not working together. And, and it's what I would call we're trying to boil the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's a human resource standpoint. It really is a human intelligence. I think the exciting part, Adam, I would say is I think the first university that does this, and it, I don't think it has to be a big name university. It's got a ton of money. It's got to be people that are thoughtful, that puts a full sports science team together. You're going to see a difference. You're yeah. going to see a difference in health. You're going to see a difference in performance. I still think you got to deal with the time demands, but I, I, th- that will make a difference. I love the fact that you didn't cite a particular technology. You didn't say that it needed to be X, Y, or Z, that ultimately the best performance tool is your human resources and an, a, a truly transdisciplinary team of professionals that that equipped and have the right athlete to practitioner ratios mm. that allows for us as sports scientists, as physical preparation coaches, as uh, sports psychologists, as you know, technical tactical coaches, as biomechanists, as uh, performance—you know, whether it's physiologists—that we all work in a multidisciplinary team with a similar direction and directive of of sharing information and intelligence that allows all of us to be transparent and to work in conjunction with each other um, to push to provide the support that a, an athlete really needs because people should battle matter first. And if yeah. they don't, then you've started down the wrong road and all of us should be in the focus of I'm working with this individual and I've contracted with them and they have contracted with this institution and we are going to focus on long-term athlete development. And that means a connection by people. Technology, as you said earlier, is a passion of yours. It is of mine as well. I, I spoke at CES about this, about the very fact, the point you're making. They are just tools. And do know, if you've not done your validation of safety, signal, and, and, and error variance, 
as a scientist, you're just marketing and I'm yeah. not going to listen because it could do harm and then it doesn't fit the tool of that long-term athlete development. Um, and then I think it touches on this other piece that I think has been in the news and you brought it up too, that scope of practice is so important. Um, I'm writing an article about that right now related to sports science. And this is one of the structural problems in, in, this, in, in the growth of sports science in the U.S., which I'm excited about. But there are some real negative factors that are coming to light. Everyone trying to be everything to everybody mm-hmm. and not even having licensure or certification. Yeah. That professionalization has got to happen. And I think what you're seeing, and you know, I know it's sort of a multifactorial reason perhaps, but as you alluded to with the sort of under-resources of what is otherwise our labor force, you're having institutions and organizations asking so much of one person that yes. you know, we're asking where it's almost a systemic problem of an organization or an institution wide of saying – Hey, you know, we don't have uh, the uh, availability of having a sports nutritionist. So who is it upon to then, you know, educate and provide that education for an athlete? We don't have a biomechanist. So who's going to be doing the sort of clinical evaluations? We don't have the tools for whatever sort of transdisciplinary team and role that a position might fill. So it's, you know, it's again, it's how do you do the best for your student athlete within sort of the construct that you have, but then greatly exceeding what is otherwise your professional scope. Yeah. And it gets dangerous because uh, again, in the, in the end, if you're beyond your scope, we're now breaking the contract with that athlete. You're breaking yeah. the contract with that athlete that we are going to keep them healthy and allow long-term athlete development as a part of a systematic process. But then we're also increasing liability for our profession, our, our department, and, and and lastly, ourselves. But I think it, it were, it, Tom Nichols said it, it says it best in, in his book, the you know the death to expertise. <laughs> that this Google filled, laden blog reading, I can look it up on Wikipedia environment has allowed marketing to supplant true competence. And until we reframe that again, and even in younger professions who don't have a scope of practice or an ethics code or a licensure, that's what they should be pursuing because that's the way we will work well together and we will ensure a proper transformation of of, uh, more formal sports science in the U.S. I really do. And we should be supporting each other on that and policing the field, calling people out and doing it respectfully. But but we need to. We need to. Yeah, I think it's in everyone's professional best interest to know where the lines are, where the gray zones are, and, and can continue to operate within their own discipline and within their own domains without stepping stepping outside of that. And then maybe to a secondary point to, you know, to also challenge the institutions when you're being asked to exceed what is otherwise your professional scope to have the uh, both the professionalism and the um, discipline of saying no um, and saying that exceeds your skill set and, and to live with either a the repercussions, but uh, more often to to live with the circumstances that, you know, like we have to as an organization, as a a uh, as a professionalism, as a profession to say no to what is otherwise asked. 
Yeah, I think that's a powerful statement because when we say no, then they have to look for an alternative solution, which may be guiding them and handholding them to a proper solution. Because, and you're also touching on is um, which <laughs> done a bit of bit of uh, field research on. So when you look at who athletics are from, if you look at their conference and you look at the topics. And then the expertise who's teaching about it, they're teaching themselves this. Yeah. So I don't know about you, but I don't know many athletic directors that know anything about mental health or brain health, who know anything about concussion, who know anything about long-term athletic uh, you know, development, who know about systematic planning for a performance environment, a high-performance environment based upon health. And so when you look at their development, we're talking to people that, uh, who don't speak this language. And so by saying no, we get the opportunity to teach them because I don't think they're acquiring this knowledge. Yeah. Um, and then we do have to collaborate with them. It just is what it is, but we have to get them up to speed. But I think you're right. You have to say no because um, you garner respect with that. You garner an ear to listen. And then to that other point on respect is I think when you work in a transdisciplinary environment, we start to get to see the huge strengths among all the disciplines, but we get to respect that too. And we get to see that it's the solutions integrated um, in this way. I, you know, in the elite military, they do case conferences on every one of their operatives about their development. You find me an NCA environment that does that regularly. Yeah. But yet <laughs> that's what we do in the elite military. It's amazing when things become life and death, we get a lot more specific. <laughs> Yeah, you know when uh, when it's a win loss, it's not nearly as uh, impactful as a, a human life. So, it, yeah. it, the the details matter certainly when it's really life and limb. Although, yeah, it's sort of we still use uh, really like battlefield analogies about being on the battlefield or in the trenches with athletics and how far could we really be from the uh, uh, the grave sort of uh, um, in results that it could potentially be. Um, I, I, I want to put it in this way. I, I know that, uh, obviously people and the audience can follow you on social media and, um, it's the, the brain always wins. Um, you also have the website, the brain always wins. I think your Twitter handle is actually brain always wins. Yes. Um, not the, but the website is the brain always wins Correct. and you're, you're the co-author of otherwise the brain always wins book, which uh, is all of this information and much more. Um, and it's laid out probably much better than long form narrative and, and jetting all over various topics. But that's kind of how my sort of caffeinated brain sort of works, uh, in the morning here. <laughs> that's but, my brain works in the morning with caffeine too. So no worries. But I, I want to give, I want to give you sort of the end of this and just, you know, an elevator pitch, you know, if, if you were to have 30 seconds to say, why someone that's that has listened to the show these topics have resonated with them and they're like this is great you've you've got the hook line you know set i'm thinking about going on amazon.com what would be that message that you share to the audience member to say okay well now i got to go and buy it now well, there's two things I'd say, and I'm going to put, you know, the first thing I'm going to say may, may, may surprise people because I'm really not going to talk about the book. I'm going to talk about the mission of the book. So having had the honor to um, work with military and the elite military, uh, one of the lasting uh, injuries of war is brain health. 
You know, um, we're asking young men and young women to be in an environment that really challenges the brain and the brain's emotional centers. And so the proceeds of the book, um, parts of the proceeds of the book go to uh, veterans groups worldwide. In the United States, it's the Lone Survivor Organization. Um, I, I come from a military family. And so, but, but it's not just from that. We've learned a lot from the brain from ultimate sacrifices. And then we learned a lot, we've learned a lot from the brain from also battlefield uh, injuries, and then also how we train our military, you know, especially our elite military. It's a brain first approach, which is kind of uh, not as common in sport in North America and elsewhere in the world. So, you know, when you're investing in the book, you're investing in helping someone else invest in their health. And we, you know, Chris Parker, my co-author and I could not write the book uh, and, and not do this. And in fact, our next book, which will be very specific to sport, The Brain Always Wins in Sport, it will be connected to, um, you know, uh, uh, Prince Henry's uh, or excuse me, Prince Harry's, um, you know, um, fine, you know, Invictus Games of really an Olympic style games for wounded warriors. And so we've learned so much from them. I think the second thing is, is that the human performance, whether you're an athlete in business, a parent is derived from the brain and everything else is complementary. doesn't mean it's less important. It's complementary. And we wanted to fill that gap, you know, because we just don't learn much about the brain. We just don't. If I didn't study it, Adam, honestly, I don't think I'd know very much. And it's just how our culture is. So this is an opportunity to bridge that gap. And we've written it so people can understand a process of how it works. And it's not one size fits all because that doesn't account for neurodiversity. Uh, we've really set it up for people can individually engage. No, excellent. Um, Dr. Sullivan, I want to just thank you for coming on uh, the Decoding Excellence. And for me, you know, I got a uh, I got a whole notebook full of notes that, like I said, this is uh, this is about sort of scratching what is otherwise my my own itch and learning more about the great work that that you're doing and your experiences, but also to learn a little bit more about you and your background of, of what makes you tick, because there are some things that both that you share on Twitter and, and elsewhere in your book that really resonate with me. And thus the reason why I wanted to get to know you more. So I would encourage um, this audience to continue to go to your website, to follow you on social media. And uh, do you have an ETA for the, uh, the brain always wins in sports? More than likely, it will be late quarter of next year. Okay. If it comes out earlier, I'll certainly put it on Twitter. As you know, probably some of that stuff that relates to editing because uh, yeah. you know the manuscript is uh, getting close to being done. So yeah, that you know the writing process, as you were talking about uh, early on, the writing is easy. I think yeah. it's the editing, the editing that is hard. <laughs> well said. Well said. Well, Dr. Sullivan, thank you so much for coming on the Decoding Excellence show. And uh, until next time, man, let's uh, let's touch base. And when this second one comes out, we'll have to we'll have to jump online and do it again. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Adam. It was a great pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you. I want to thank Dr. John Sullivan for coming on the Decoding Excellence show. I took a lot away from this conversation and uh, a whole notebook, really, of notes and topics and things to think about as we continue to develop our transdisciplinary performance team here. 
the ideas between mental toughness and what that really means, if it means anything, versus a resiliency-based training. Um, looking at different sort of wellness questionnaires from a mood, a fatigue, a sleep, a soreness standpoint, and trying to get a better understanding of, uh, of how the athlete is feeling and how that might sort of affect their central nervous system and their uh, ability to be ready for training or for competition. And then obviously the importance of nutrition and hydration and sleep as we relate it to brain health, not just mental health, but brain health. Um, when we're looking at our student athletes, but like I said, this is a wide ranging conversation. This whole show is about bringing great people on like Dr. Sullivan and really understanding the tools, the tactics, the techniques that go into creating a high performance team and an excellent or masterful coach or program until next time. Thank you for tuning in to the decoding excellence show.